Well, good morning again, River Rock Bible Church. We're so glad you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, We are closing out the book of Malachi this week. We've spent seven weeks going through this little four-chapter book, the last and the final uh, book of the Old Testament. Old Testament being the Hebrew scriptures, everything written before the coming of Jesus Christ when he was born. And this is the the final sermon of this this little heavy, hard-hitting prophecy book of Malachi. And these are the last three verses of the final chapter, the last 72 words, the last prophecy of the 12 prophets of the Old Testaments. And uh, these are God's final words before 400 years of silence, his final warning before what he describes, as we saw last week, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And even though these words were written over 2,400 years ago, 2,400 years ago, the faithfulness of God has not changed and the unfaithfulness of man has not changed. And so the words that were written centuries ago are still applicable to us today. And today we're going to see in this passage the importance of looking back, but not just looking back to remember, but also looking ahead and then finally looking at our present situation. And so we're going to start just by reading these last three verses, Malachi chapter 4. And you're going to remember with me, I've said throughout this series that Malachi is a difficult message to hear. It's an even harder one to preach, and it's an even harder one to live out. It's a, it's a difficult and challenging message, and I don't know about you, but at the same time I've been challenged, I've been grateful for God's word to us, for the balance of his love, his mercy, and his justice, and his judgment, the way that he works this throughout. Throughout this whole book, he's been calling his people back into relationship with him because they've they've falsely believed that they could honor God just by going through the motions, just by worshiping according to the things that God said without having a relationship with him. And one of the things that I've said before, I, I use this often when I talk to parents, is that rules without relationship leads to rebellion right? And so the people of Israel are feeling that because they lack that relationship with God. They feel like it's just these rules. And so they start to throw off his yoke. They start to throw it off and rebel against him in small ways. Yet at the same time, they're saying, hey, we're obeying. We're doing exactly what you've called us to do. And God says, yeah, but your hearts are far from me. So we come to the the last part of this little book, just three verses, and we're going to see this final portion of Malachi's message before God takes 400 years of silence. He says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, remember the instruction of Moses, my servants, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, the first thing I want us to do is I want us to look again at verse 4, where God is calling us to remember his word and his works. When God says remember 
the instruction that I gave to Moses, he says, remember the law, remember all of these things. He's talking about much more than just remembering the rules. And we're going to see that in just a second. Verse 4 of chapter 4 again says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So we have this word zakar. Zakar means to remember in Hebrew. It's used 14 times throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If you remember your Bible history, or maybe you don't know, enough, don't know much about uh, the early books of the Bible, uh, in Exodus, God takes the people of Israel through Moses. He leads them out of, of slavery in Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, he leads them out, and he takes them, and he says, hey, that promise that I made to Abraham, I'm finally going to give you guys the land. It's time for me to give you that land, and we're going to go in and we're going to take the land. But remember, they go and they spy on the land, and 10 of the spies say, no, 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 these people here are giants. They're going to they're gonna whoop up on us. We're not going in there. But there's two faithful spies that say, no, we, we think God is on our side. Remember how he destroyed the Egyptians. Remember everything he did. But the people of Israel listen to the other 10 spies, and they think, oh, our God's not big enough. These people are too big. And so God says, because of your disobedience, because of your lack of faith, you're going to wander the desert for 40 years until this entire generation dies out. And you're not going to even get to set foot in the promised land. It's going to be your children that go in. And so they do that. They kind of wander around in the desert for 40 years, and then the time comes, and God says for them to go back in. Well, shortly after they left Egypt the first time, they end up at Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, the same place. It's the same place, uh, just two different names, right? It's kind of like we have um, different, you know, we have uh, Williams Drive has a different name. You know, it turns into FM 20-something or other. I, I can't remember what it is right now off the top of my head. But we have these roads that have two different names, same thing. We got Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. And so God comes to him and he says, hey, You guys, if you're going to be my treasured possession, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be in relationship with me, I want to show you what that relationship's going to look like. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives him the Ten ten Commandments. And he comes back down and gives those to the people. Obviously, uh, there was the first time he comes back down, they're worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses gets mad and throws the tablets down, and then he's got to go back up on the mountain and get another set of the Ten Commandments. And this time, he's got to write it with his own hand. And he comes back down. And he's like, all right, guys. We already broke numbers one, two, three, and 4 uh, by making that golden calf. Let's try again. All right? So he gives them the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read those, but you can find those in Exodus 20. But then when they're getting ready to take possession of the land in Deuteronomy after 40 years, they have a public reading of the law. Deuteronomy, second law, the second giving of the law. And throughout Deuteronomy, God calls them to remember, 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 remember what I've done for you. Remember the covenant that I made with your father Abraham. Remember all of these things. And that word zakar, to remember, it it means it's the mental act of remembering combined with appropriate action. It's a call to recall and obey. Recall it to mind and do it. Recall it to mind and do it. How many of you, if you sent your kids to their room to clean their room and they didn't do it, but you go in there and they say, oh, no, no, dad, I remember you told me to clean my room. How many of you would be happy about that? I don't think so. 
You're like, no, I want you to remember what I said and then do it also, right? We've got to have both. And so here Malachi says, remember and do it. Remember and do it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, God says this uh, through Moses. He says, only be, dil- be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and so that they do not slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. And in verse 10, he says, the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's when they got the Ten Commandments, the Lord said to me, assemble the people before me and I will let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. All right, next week, after we finish Backyard Bible Club, we're, we're praying that God would allow us to reach a number of families, and we're going to have a series on parenting and on, on instructing our children in the word of the Lord, but God calls them to remember. God calls them to recall and to act and to put into practice all the things that he said. And I love this in Exodus 20 when God gives them the Ten Commandments. He reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. It would be hard to forget everything that they had been through. The ten plagues where God demonstrated his power over the, the false gods of Egypt. The final plague of the Passover where God spared them. And then crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, only to turn around and see it collapse on itself as the Egyptian army approached and was completely swallowed up. It would have been hard to forget those things. And God's saying, remember those things. Remember my words and my works. Remember how I worked powerfully, how faithful I was to you to protect you because I'm in relationship with you. I think this is a call for us to remember God's grace and mercy towards them. It's a call, first of all, to remember who God is, that he is perfectly holy. That's what the law is about. It shows how perfectly holy God is and how we as a perfectly unholy people are to worship him. So we remember who God is. We remember who we are in the giving of the law, that The people of Israel had no way to protect themselves. They had no way to fight against the Egyptians. God had to be the one to fight for them. And in the same way, we have no way to fight against our own sin. There was nothing we could do to rescue ourselves. The law wasn't given as a way for them to to try to be good enough to earn God's, God's approval. The intent of God giving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law was so that people would look at that and say, Man, there's only, ten, there's only 10 things here. And every day, I fail at every single one of them. There's no way I can make God happy on my own. The whole point of the law was to point us to the reality that we need a Savior. So that when God would send his one and only Son, that we would recognize that God had provided that Savior. And lastly, we, we remember what we must do. The commandments are all relational in nature. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. The the remaining six have to do with our relationship with each other. It's about relationship. God's desire was for there to be a relationship, not just rules, not just something to live by, some things that make us nice people. 
But God is saying, hey, if you do these things, you'll have relationship with me and you'll have better relationships with one another. Keep these things in mind. Keep these things in mind. And so we see these things. And something that my dad used to always say to me when I was growing up, before I'd go and spend the night with, with a friend or before I'd, I'd get dropped off at, at camp, sometimes it was just at school, my dad would pull me in close, and he still does it today. He'd pull me in close, and he'd tell me, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. And as a kid, when he dropped me off at a friend's house, I knew that that meant use your manners, be polite, because if I have to come pick you up, I got, a, I got a belt in my closet that's got your name on it, right? I just, I knew, like, remember whose you are. Like, I'm representing my family. And if I mess it up, then I'm going to be in big trouble. But as I got older, I understood more. My dad didn't care about our family name in that sense. When my dad was saying, remember whose you are, he was reminding me, no, it's not just that you're representing the Turners. It's that you're representing God. You need to remember whose you are. Remember who you belong to. I say it to my kids now pretty often. Try to remind them, remember whose you are. You're not going to be with me forever. You're not just mine. God has given me the privilege of, of raising you as my child, but you are God's. Remember whose you are. I think God is calling the people of Israel to remember whose you are. And in remembering who you belong to, you remember the powerful, mighty God that you serve. And the fact that he demonstrated his desire for a relationship with you. He calls them to remember. I have any history fans out there? Uh, when, I was in, when I was in seventh grade, I became a Texas history fan. Now, if you're not from Texas, your state is probably not awesome enough to have an entire year dedicated to the history of your state. But in Texas, in seventh grade, you take an entire year just of Texas history. The world began in 1836, right? Everything before that is just a footnote. 1836, the world begins. It begins, and uh, one of my favorite stories from Texas history is not just the story of the Alamo, but the story of what would happen six weeks later at the Battle of San Jacinto. Now, I grew up near Houston, not far from San Jacinto, so I've been to the San Jacinto Monument a number of times, and it remains one of my favorite stories. Let me ask, does anybody know what the battle cry was at the Battle of San Jacinto? Remember the Alamo, and remember Goliad. Remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. See, remember the Alamo, uh, Sam Houston comes before his troops, and he's trying to rally the troops, and so he starts screaming, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo, and he's calling them to remember that just six weeks earlier, 182 men were gathered inside this small mission, and they defended themselves for 13 days against over 6,000 members of the Mexican army before they were completely overrun and massacred. And it was just a few weeks after that, we have the great runway scrape. 
And we have this group twice as big, almost 350 men under the charge of James Fannin. And they're defending another spot near Behar. And they're defending this spot. And they realize that they're just outnumbered. Even though they've lost much fewer men than the Mexican army, they just realize they're outnumbered. And so they surrender. And they surrender thinking that surely they'll have mercy on us. But Santa Ana was very cruel and he wanted no rebel to be left alive. So after a few days, uh, March 27th, Palm Sunday, the men are divided into quarters, into fours, and they're sent four different directions outside the city. And once they're about a mile outside the city, they're flanked on either side by Mexican soldiers. The soldiers turn on them and open fire. And those that weren't killed by the musket fire were clubbed or brutally stabbed to death with bayonets. The wounded that were still inside the city were also massacred in their beds. And James Fannin was brought to the middle of the courtyard and executed. 342 men lost their lives. So now imagine being a member of the Texian army. And you're about to go into what is your final battle. They know that what is left of Sam Houston's army, the 700, 600 men that are there at the Battle of San Jacinto against the 1,400 to 2,000 Mexicans, this is it. It's all that's left. So Sam Houston stands in front of his troops at 4 p.m. And he says, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo. And somewhere in the crowd, someone says, no, don't just remember the Alamo, remember Goliath. Remember the Alamo, remember Goliath. If these things, these horrific acts that have been done don't stir in you the passion to go to battle, to fight, and to win your freedom, then nothing will. And I think in the same way when Malachi says, remember the law, he's saying, if your memory of the greatness of God is so small that you don't remember how great he is and how far he went to be in relationship with you, if that doesn't stir you up and say, Lord, I, I need you, God, I am here and I want that relationship with you, Lord, I want to obey. I want to remember your law and put it into action. I want to go. I remember how you were victorious over the Egyptians. I remember how you split the Red Sea. I remember how you went before us in a, in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. I remember the manna that fell from heaven and the quail and the water that came from the rock. God, I remember. And I want to obey not out of duty or obligation, but out of relationship with you. Father, change my heart. So he says, remember the words and the works of God. And don't just remember and sit back and think about your glory days like some 40-year-old man still wearing his Letterman High School football jacket sitting in a bar talking about how he almost won the state championship. No. No, he says, remember so that you can move forward, knowing that victory is coming, knowing that God stands victorious in the end. And look at what he says in verse 5. 
says, look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here he tells them to look forward in hope. Look forward in hope. He shifts their focus from the past to the future. And he says, I am coming. I am coming and I'm going to be victorious. And he says, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah. Now this has a dual fulfillment. The way I read this, the way I understand this, number one, we've already talked about it. God has promised one like Elijah to come. We know that Jesus affirms that this is John the Baptist, the one who declared the coming of Jesus the first time. But as we look further into the future and we read the book of Revelation, we know again that there will be a prophet, either Elijah himself or one like Elijah, who will come and proclaim God's grace and mercy before the end, before the end comes. And so I think we have this dual fulfillment. Number one, we know it was fulfilled in John the Baptist before Jesus came the first time. Number two, we know it's going to be fulfilled again before Christ's Christ's return. So again, we know that in the end, there's going to be judgment. That all those who reject God's offer of grace and mercy will be judged. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, what I love about this is that God precedes the wrath of judgment with a call to mercy. The prophet Elijah was the one who continually called the people back to rejoin in relationship with God. And in the same way, every single one of us has a ministry like Elijah. No, we're not We're not the Elijah spoken of in this passage. But even myself here proclaiming this message to you today, I in some ways fulfill a role of one like Elijah who proclaims the mercy and the grace of God before the coming great and awesome day of the Lord. In the same way, every single one of us who are following Jesus Christ, who've put our trust in him, we have a ministry We have the privilege and the opportunity to fulfill the role of one like Elijah who would go to the world around us. We'd go to our workplaces. We'd go to Mexico. We'd go to our schools, our sports teams, the places we hang out after work. And we would begin proclaiming the great mercy and grace of God, calling people into relationship with him so that they can escape the coming judgment. That we would see and have the privilege of seeing what we're going to see in verse 6. The hearts of the children turn to their fathers and the hearts of fathers turn to the children. We look forward in hope. We look forward in hope. We know, we know that God loves every single one of us. that the amnesty that he offers is signed with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and he calls us to come back. He calls us back into relationship with him before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Lastly, we have to consider how does the word of God affect us today? What are its implications in our lives? We have to consider the impact of his word. Consider the impact of his word. Verse six says this, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 
Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. A couple of things happening here. Now, there's a couple ways that this verse is understood about turning the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. The first is this, that many people read this and they say, okay, when Elijah comes and he preaches God's mercy and God's grace, that people's hearts will be turned as they receive God's grace and begin a relationship with him. And as they do that, fathers and children who were once unable to connect, people who who had relationships that just weren't working, are going to find themselves as recipients of God's grace and mercy, able to find common ground, able to forgive things that without having received God's grace and mercy, they wouldn't be able to give themselves. And so we see that this this is often the case. I've shared before that my wife and I, oftentimes, especially in the early years of our marriage, when, when we would have a discussion, as we like to call them, and sometimes those discussions would get a little bit heated, we knew that separating was not an option. We could always come back to the firm foundation that one thing that no matter how big the, the discussion was, no matter how big the disagreement was, we could come back to the reality that we have put our trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and that was our common bond, and that was enough for us to say, I'm staying. And the same is true. The same is true with parents and children, coworkers, friends. When you have two people whose hearts have been turned to, toward God and are in relationship with him, there's nothing that he can't bring healing to. It's not always immediate, but there's nothing that he can't bring healing to. So that's one understanding of this verse. But I think there's more. I think what Malachi is saying, he's already said, remember the law of Moses. Remember Moses' instruction. I think he's saying the hearts of children will be turned to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. I think what he's saying to the people of Israel is this. He's saying, remember all those heroes of the faith that are written about in Scripture? You remember Enoch who walked with God all the days of his life and then he was no more. You remember Abraham who followed the Lord in faith. You remember Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you remember Rahab and Caleb and Joshua. You remember all these heroes of the faith. You remember King David. You remember Gideon. You remember Deborah. You remember Esther. All these people that you've been reading about through Scripture. All these heroes that you put on a pedestal and say, we want to be like them. If only we could be like them. He's saying, if you will turn your heart, if you will receive God's grace and mercy and begin walking in a relationship with him, God will turn your heart to be like those patriarchs. To be just like those people. And the things that you read about them doing, you will get to experience yourself. So I think, again, it's a call to remember. We see this again in Hebrews chapter 11. We see this instruction for us to remember these heroes of the faith. That we would emulate them. That we would be like them. That our hearts would be like them. That it would change not just our future but it would change how we live day to day. And then we have this last sentence. It's a tough sentence. God says to those who won't turn, he says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament before 400 years of silence is curse. 
Think about that. God's last word before dropping the mic, walking off stage for 400 years, is that I'm going to send a curse. This one, one sentence was so troubling to many of the ancient Jews that they would actually repeat the previous sentence after this sentence because it was so disturbing to them, this idea that God was going to come and strike the land with a curse. The word that is used there is cherem. If you want to know how to spell that, it's flim, R-E-M, cherem, right? So it means utter destruction, total destruction. This is a term that was used only a few times in the Old Testament to describe when God would call the people of Israel to go to war and completely wipe out a city or completely wipe out a people, he would use this term. And he would tell them, I want you to go and completely destroy this city. Don't leave any living, breathing thing left alive, whether human or animal. I want everything in this city destroyed. I want no stone left on top of another. This is scorched earth. I want it completely wiped off the face of the earth. God would use this term. And so he uses this term here as a warning to say, I am extending my grace and my mercy to you inviting you into a relationship with me. But for those of you that reject it, just know that complete and utter destruction is coming. This is what makes our role as those who proclaim the grace and mercy of God, as those who in some ways fill that role of Elijah, calling people into relationship with him. It's what makes our part so important. So important is that we have this call. I read this quote this week. It says, When people receive or reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they are passing judgment day verdict upon themselves. In preparing people for Jesus to be revealed to the nation of the Jews, John was preparing people for judgment day. Those who truly owned up to their sin would be looking for the Savior. Those who went on in the pretense and hypocrisy of being good enough for God by their religion would reject Jesus. That judgment day stands for eternity. God is giving us an opportunity to respond. The message of Malachi is one that demands a response from us. I don't believe you can read the book of Malachi and walk away having not made a decision. You will either turn your heart back towards God And walk in relationship with him, fulfilling his law and his commands, not out of duty or obligation or in some way to try to earn his approval. I've said it before that our relationship with God is never dictated by our obedience. But our obedience does reflect our relationship with him. Does that make sense? It is a reflection of our relationship with him. And so he's calling us to receive that grace and mercy. And so we either respond and begin walking with him. We have the change of heart and allow our worship to be wholehearted, holding nothing back. Or we reject his offer and we walk away knowing that the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. What is your response today? 
What is your response to God? Will you respond to his call to join in a relationship with him, to walk with him, to, to live in obedience with, with him, knowing that you're going to mess it up? Can I get an amen? You're going to mess it up. But through his grace and his mercy, he says, I've sent my son Jesus Christ to perfectly fulfill the law because I know that you can't. And I want you to walk with me to live out my precepts out of love because it's just a better way. I have more for you. Maybe your response to the book of Malachi is that for the first time, you recognize your own imperfection, your own sin, your own brokenness. Perhaps you have been living like the people of Malachi's day, thinking, you know what, if I just go to church enough, and if I just tithe enough, and if I just do the right things, maybe if I go on a mission trip, then God will accept me. And now is the day for you to understand that while those are all good things, that those things have absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Because of our sin, we can never be good enough to make up for the things that we've done against the Lord. But in his grace and in his mercy, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. And it's in accepting that that we experience forgiveness of sin and salvation. Maybe your response today is to pick up the mantle of Elijah and say, I will become a proclaimer of God's grace and mercy to the world around me. So that my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, my classmates can escape the judgment that is coming on the great and awesome day of the Lord. What is your response? I encourage you to take some time, spend some time in prayer. The worship team is going to lead us in one more song. You can feel free to either stand and sing or just sit. This is a time for you to respond. What is it that God is saying to you? And how will you respond?